Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, Dominic Cummings breaches the lockdown. We agreed that we should go for a short drive to see if I could drive safely. But the advisor clings on. If I were Prime Minister, I'd have sacked Cummings. Will it do long-term damage to the Tories? And we'll just keep burning through Boris's political capital at a rate that we just can ill afford in the midst of this crisis. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hello, Arj. Hey, Paul. We're also delighted to welcome back the former Tory special advisor, Salma Shah. Hi, Arj. Hiya. And we've also got former Labour advisor Matthew McGregor back. Hi, Arj. Hi, Matthew. How's the uh, lockdown for everyone? It's, at least it's sunny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for now. Salma, lockdown going, going well? Um, I'm now sick of lockdown. I had a real positive attitude to it earlier, you know, thinking about all the things I'd get done. I've, I'm officially over it. <laughs> I'm still, I'm with Salma. I still haven't had a chance to watch Tiger King. Oh what? great! Oh, you've got to I did. Yeah, yeah. I'm, way, I'm way behind the zeitgeist. Tiger King and The Last Dance on Netflix. Last Dance, I haven't watched that either. Yeah, it's good. It's very anyway, good. Anyway, very good. Call. Well, we must move on because Durham Police have just confirmed what everyone knew anyway that Dominic Cummings breached the coronavirus lockdown by driving 50 miles from his parents' estate in Durham to Barnard Castle in a trip he claimed was necessary to test his eyesight. Uh, this was after he drove 260 miles to Durham to self-isolate with his family, which the police said it, it was not a breach of the rules. Somehow, Boris Johnson is still standing by him, but even his own health secretary can't say Cummings did the right thing. Here's Matt Hancock clashing with the BBC's Nick Robinson on the Today programme. That did is Dominic important. Cummings do the right thing, to use your phrase? Uh, I, I think, as I've said before, um, I've answered that question. Um, and Well, what did he matters... do the right thing? Uh, well, Did he do I, the right I, thing? Well, as Did he I've do said, his duty? Nick, I've answered this question before, a couple of days ago, and the Prime Minister's answered all these questions endlessly. No, yesterday. no, no, he's never answered the moral case, whether he did the right thing. Well, I've said that I think that he was acting within the guidelines. I also understand why reasonable people might disagree with that. But what matters? What matters? Well, no, no, forgive for me. What matters is not dodging the question that I'm asking you. But I'm I asking you, I, using on, on your words, Secretary of State, these are your words. You say duty. You say right thing. You say do your bit. And what people are saying to you is, Mr Cummings did none of those. And whenever ministers are asked, they try and dodge the question. Um, Paul, uh, breaking news with the Durham Police statement, and we've had the number 10 response. Can you explain what's happening and yeah. where well, you think we're going now? The, the most significant thing about the Durham Police statement is that it says they've concluded, quote, there might have been a minor breach of the regulations that would have warranted police intervention. But they view it as a minor matter and because there's no apparent breach of social distancing. So 
that that has allowed number 10 to then say, look, look, he hasn't broken the rules. No one can say he's definitely broken the rules. They say he might have. And so obviously, um, number 10, rather relieved. I've just come off a, a lobby call where uh, you can tell that actually they were waiting for that actual statement to come out. And there is a lot of relief now um, that I don't think actually, in a, in, a, in a way, it really does help Boris Johnson or Dominic Cummings because that that statement goes into quite a bit of granular detail um, that that there was indeed something that might have warranted a police intervention the fact is that there wasn't any police intervention no one actually stopped him or phoned the cops at the time in barnard castle um, there wasn't a sort of a you know z cars squad that swooped on him as he was by the river um so if there had been there would be a different scenario but um but so it just shows, I suppose, the ordinary members of the public will think, well, actually, yeah, maybe it is one law for them and one law for us. Because, you know, if you look at the detail of it, he, he did. They, even the cops are saying there was a possible breach here and yet nothing's happened. Now, obviously, it's worth saying that this isn't a breach in the same uh, league as, you know, a, a mass gathering of kids having a rave in, in Leeds like your hometown, Arj, um, <laughs> um, or anything like that. But it's a cheap thing. <laughs> but, uh, but but at the same time, um, you know, it, it does show that, that the rules were there, open to interpretation. And I think that's going to be quite damaging. Yeah. And, and number 10's come back, Salma, and basically said, that's fine. We consider the matter closed, but it's not really closed, is it? Well, I mean, of course, they're going to say that because what day are we on now of this story? It's been rumbling along for such a long time. Um, that they are desperate to close it down and be able to to move on because, as Paul says, it is damaging. Now, where is it damaging is the question. Is it damaging to the public health message? Is it damaging to the party? Is it damaging to the government's authority? All those things are true to varying degrees. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that they, that Durham Police have said that, you know, there was a minor breach um, uh, but it's not going to go any further means that, you know, the damage that it's inflicted has been justified, um, but it means that they can now start to try and move on from it. Matthew, what do you think? Do you think people are going to move on? Well, I mean, the Durham Police statement makes it clear that he's not going to uh, uh, face any problems in a court of law. But I think the court of public opinion has already firmly decided uh, against him this is a political problem has always been a political problem rather than a legal one and the the government is in is in is continues to be a massive uh damage uh damage control uh, uh situation they've they've floundered for a week and this is in the middle of a global pandemic so i think it continues to be a massive problem for them and uh the story isn't going to go away because of this statement probably the opposite well i wonder if it's actually if the story might dissipate i mean it's no longer on the front pages as it has been like every other day up until now um i think it's less about the story itself but actually what happens as the consequence like the way the center is then viewed and this very you know all-powerful figure at the center and how his particular authority may be diminished as a consequence and i also think it's interesting how the opposition actually has stepped out of this slightly rather than charging in and, and really having a go because even we saw yesterday there was the liaison committee with all the, the chairs of the select committee questioning the prime minister. And the thing that I felt really sad about was that, that it, it, it does feel like a distraction. Yes, there are questions to answer, but is that really what we want everybody to be spending their time on? 
Um, and so there are some serious issues that still need to be sort of discussed and um, criticised and, and looked at that are really involving actual policy. So track and trace, care homes, etc. Um, and I do, I do slightly worry that we're that we are missing the point a little bit now. Yeah, question for everyone really: What do we think of Number Ten's handling of this since the story broke in the Guardian and, and Mirror last Friday? Do we think they've handled it well? Well, I, I personally think that um, it's exposed the sort of brittleness at the heart of Number Ten's press operation, uh, a sort of. Uh, the instant reaction to any criticism is to say, well, there's public trust in media is gone down the toilet and no one believes you guys anyway, uh, even though, and you saw that strategy being played out by the Prime Minister himself subsequently where he tried to claim, and he claimed again in the liaison committee, that, oh, that there were lots of inaccuracies in this story. Well, actually, no, there weren't lots of inaccuracies. The fundamentals were absolutely right. He did drive a long way to Durham. Um, he did go back. There were three apparent breaches. He did go straight back into, into number 10, which he actually told us all himself, despite the fact he shouldn't have gone back into number 10 to pick up some things. Um, he did drive north and he did have this uh, trip, this bizarre trip to Barnard Castle, which, you know, very few people actually think was credible any of those explanations about his eyesight or, or or going for leisure or for exercise um and so it's exposed the way number 10 have sort of panicked in a crisis more than perhaps they've panicked on some of the more fundamental issues about testing and tracing and ppe but it, it does show a sort of political brittleness i think um and that's probably down to the the, the political spokesman rather than the prime minister's official spokesman who's incredibly uh, new to the job, unlike the official spokesman who's been there for a long time, worked under Theresa May, um, knows how to be unflappable. The political spokesman, who I won't name because we don't, um, is basically was parachuted into that job right at the beginning of the year, uh, probably thought he'd have an easy life and boy, has he not got an easy life now. And that, that sort of... Um, um, the sort of snark that's come out from number 10 uh, is a lot due to, down to him, I think. Uh, Matthew, I can see you nodding. Yeah, I mean, I think they've, I think the downstream operation has played this exactly right if the story was a Westminster village story. But unfortunately for them, it's something that touches almost every single person in the country personally and speaks to a, a core part of how people view a global pandemic, which is that we're supposed to be all in this together. And you can see that in the way that Tory MPs have reacted. Uh, some were quite quick off the mark, but they're still coming out and saying... Uh, because of the number of letters they're getting and what they're hearing from their constituents, they want Cummings to resign. And, you know, George Freeman said that he's had a thousand emails, personal emails in 48 hours. George Aldous from Waveney said he'd had hundreds. Now, I mean, I worked in Parliament uh, 10, 15 years ago. I've spoken to friends who work in, in Parliament now and, and they sit up and notice if they get two dozen. Of these, of these kinds of, of letters. They can't remember ever getting a thousand emails about a single topic ever. They likened it to, you know, off the scale, even compared to the Iraq war or Brexit or same-sex marriage. So it, it's not a political management problem, a West, Westminster Village tittle-tattle story. And that's how they've approached it. And that's why they've got it wrong. I think um, there's something really telling in what you've just said, Matt, which is um, I think the, the thing that I would probably liken it to was the experience of parliamentarians uh, through the expenses scandal. So people didn't quite understand how it was going to have that impact because 
you know, it was kind of like a little admin sort of accounts thing that nobody ever really paid attention to before. But the, the point that they missed, and I think that was missed this time, is just how relatable it is when you're, you yourself are in this position of lockdown. And I look, I'm sure a lot of people have probably had minor infractions as well, which is why the lack of an apology straight off the bat was the massive miscalculation. Um, because really what you want is to have that kind of sense of, you know, actually we all make mistakes and, you know, we're really grateful to you for keeping lockdown. We know that it's going to be difficult and not everybody's going to do it perfectly. I'm just as fallible. I'm so sorry. Let's move on. Like that is the way to have handled it. So in answer to your question, Arj, no, this hasn't been handled particularly well. At the risk of sounding a little bit too sort of defensive of kind of, you know, spokespeople and, and former government advisors, of which I was one, I would just caution slightly is that, you know, nobody knows what's happening at the moment in terms of what the future holds, because we've never encountered a, a pandemic of this nature before. It's never touched our shores. We've had, you know, Ebola and we've seen, um, well, we, we, we have reacted to Ebola in recent memory. We have seen SARS come over, but not really um, touch European um, soil. Um, so I have a little bit of sympathy with people trying to race, you know, whilst this is unfolding. I think, Paul, you said something quite interesting about the brittleness at the heart of the operation. Uh, I think that is probably true. And I think to try and change in this scenario and this context to try and be dynamic to reflect, you know, the needs of this particular crisis is a really, really hard thing to do. Um, I'm not suggesting that this is, should be any kind of defence. I mean, this is more of kind of just understanding the framework in which in political advisors existed um, and making those judgment calls are so hard because you're not always cognizant of every little bit of information and sometimes it does lead you to read the the, the wrong response um i believe i'm right in saying that both of you have worked alongside cummings is that right i haven't no. all right matthew has worked <laughs> alongside cummings um, what did you make of his press conference and, and his extraordinary <laughs> press conference on Monday and, and just his general um, handling of this situation? Yeah, I think, I think I'm one of the few lefties in Britain that's had first-hand experience of working with him. It depends how you define Kate Hoey's politics. But, uh, I mean, I, I, it, it, was, it was a good decade uh, since I've, since I've uh, you know, worked, worked with him. Um, and, and honestly, it was a very strange uh, thing to watch him on screen and see all of these tweets, how not contrite he was, how unapologetic he was. And honestly, that was probably the most contrite I've ever seen Dominic Cummings, personally. <laughs> um, but I think that says more about his personality than about how, he, how contrite he was. I think, you know, look, the, the vote leave operation and the, the, that milieu around uh, Cummings are not stupid. They understand politics. In fact, they're amongst the best people in this country at, at doing it. They're students of it and they know what they're doing, they have taken a judgment that his value to the government is even bigger than the scale of the damage that his presence is doing to the government's popularity. And I think that says a lot about their sense of value in him and how central he is to the operation. But I, should, I don't think we should underestimate the extent to which they understand this is genuinely hurting the government, um, their brand, their reputation, and that it will leave a mark for a long time. Uh, yeah, you touched on it there, Matthew, but the fallout of the Cummings affair has led to a Tory revolt of more than 40 MPs, which uh, still appears to be growing. 
And Johnson and the Tories' poll ratings have also taken a battering. The government's own scientific advisers have also warned that Cummings' actions and ministers' response could undermine the NHS test and trace scheme being launched today. Uh, here's behavioural scientist Stephen Reicher. And I think the real problem here is that not simply in what Mr Cummings did, but in the messaging that the Prime Minister put out. The, the lesson was, forget about the we, it's about I. When the going gets tough, you can think about uh, your natural instincts, so-called. When the going gets tough, uh, you think about your own interpretation of what the implications are for you. And if everybody had done that, and if everybody had gone out, then quite frankly, the lockdown wouldn't have worked. The curve wouldn't have been flattened. The NHS has been overwhelmed. And so the thing that really concerned me yesterday was everything was about I. Everything is about what it means for me. There was no consideration at all of what it means for the community. Uh, Paul, are there now questions over test and trace? And well... Yeah, I mean, the, a lot of people have made the very obvious point that actually they think that the whole Cummings affair has undermined general trust in lockdown rules and, and people are worried naturally, will will the public comply with a, you know, a, an order from if you get one on the phone from one of these tracing people, look, you've got a lockdown for the next 14 days and, and you, you've got to take time off work. Um, Personally, and I've written about this a couple of times this week, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't don't think that the public will react like that. I don't think they'll they'll cut off their nose to spite Cummings's face. I really don't think that. Uh, I think that on the whole, um, the government is being quite cynical about it as well. It, it knows it's coming out of lockdown. If we were still, if we're in the peak of the pandemic, this story would be so much more difficult. If and if 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 uh, Cummings had had been for example, fined by the cops, it'd be much more difficult. But I personally think that with summer on its way, everyone being given this tempting future of summer holidays, hairdressers, pubs even, which you're going to see a lot more of tonight when the Prime Minister does his first bit of uh, easing the lockdown um, on, on, on live on TV again. When you're in that sort of atmosphere, You've got to put that in context, what's going to happen. And, and, and I think the tiny, tiny number of people who will actually be forced to self-quarantine under the test and stay, trace system, and it will be a small number of people because that's the very nature of the system. The numbers have got to be really low for it to make a, a difference. Um, that will be drowned out by the general sense of relief things go back to normal. So there is a sort of cynicism at the heart of government that actually it can ride this out. And don't forget with Cummings, the most important thing to remember about Cummings is that uh, Johnson is a delegator. That's his form of leadership. He delegates, it, it delegates, he sort of um, subcontracts his brain power to other people. Uh, Cummings is his subcontracted brain, there's no question. Um, and uh, if you've got no ideas of your own, no plan of your own, you rely on, the, on your subcontracted brain to deliver that plan. And that's why he can't fire him. Because yeah. who, who else will be there? And I was I was asking someone at number ten recently. I said, "Well, who could replace Cummings?" And it's a question not many people have asked. Who's got the same caliber? And as as Matthew quite rightly says, this guy is is politically incredibly astute. You know, he's won things. He's won not just a, a massive Brexit referendum against the odds. He's he's also been crucial in delivering that big landslide majority. So you know. If you've got a winner, why are you going to dump him just because actually you know it things are going to look bad for a few weeks, where over the long term he might do you some good? The big caveat to that, and I think this is a big caveat, is that Cummings is a campaigner rather than a governor. And 
whether or not um, any of his schemes, harebrained or not, for delivering in government, for this levelling up agenda, actually do materialise um, is another massive, massive question mark. Um, and he's shown, I don't think he's got any experience of delivering in government. He's got lots of experience of delivering campaigns and results. Yeah, I've, I've been writing about uh, Cummings' importance to Johnson this week and heard the amazing anecdote from inside government that he sometimes attends two meetings at once and goes in, in one and out of the other and back into the other one. Um, but Salma, I mean, Johnson's uh, personal ratings have taken a hit. The Tories' polls ratings have taken a hit. Is that going to continue? And does there come a point where Johnson goes, mm, actually... No, I think he's probably weathered this now. And I think Paul's absolutely right that you can't underestimate the significance. I mean, it's not just about the person, it's about the role, right? This is a huge, huge job in government in, in any scenario. And there are very few people who can do it. There are very few people with the requisite experience. Um, who are talented and who are willing, quite frankly, to sacrifice their lives to go and work 18 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. So yes, there is a recruitment challenge there um, if he if he was fired. And yeah, I, I also agree with the fact that, you know, this is really an administration and a project built um, with Dominic Cummings um, at the centre of it, rather than the, the the Prime Minister. And that is true to varying degrees of, of lots of people in, in these positions, you know, where they do outsource a little bit because they want that to, to create that capacity. I think the problem here is that the one of the key pillars of this administration about being on the side of those people who were left behind, which don't forget started under Theresa May and is kind of an extension of what I think Nick Timothy was trying to do when he occupied this position, um, is that it does undermine that slightly. So, you know, the, the because the optics have changed, what's going to happen underneath it is going to have to change as well. And that probably means a lot more borrowing, it probably means an increase in taxation and it probably means having to really try and spend their way out of this political hole. And I think it's less about what's going to happen in the immediate. I mean, as I've said before, you know, th there is going to be a sort of shifting and a, and a reduction of authority in that in that position and for that person. But the long term implications of this, when you marry it up against Brexit, against um, Covid and, and the, the, the economic impact of the pandemic, and what you then need to do in order to re-establish your credentials for that voter base that you are desperate to secure come 2024. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Matthew, what do you think of this idea that it could do lasting damage to the Tories? I mean, we, we obviously won't know, um, but it does feel to me like this is something that is of the lasting damage nature of a, of a story. You know, put it, I'd put it alongside the the sort of ERM in the sense that it, it speaks to the absolute core of the the government's own brand that it's in touch with people that it's a different kind of conservative party a different kind of um, uh, uh, political uh, movement a, a, and and this has smashed that to bits I, I think that's not that doesn't mean that it's not um, rescuable for them there's four years to the next general election not four months and 
um, you know, they, they, they can work it back, but there, there is damage to be repaired. I don't think that anyone should be under any illusion. This, per, this is a personal issue to almost everyone in the country who has personal experience of the lockdown. Um, and, and everyone knows that this, this has happened. Um, so I, I, th I do think they've got a, a hole to dig themselves out of. Doesn't mean they won't be able to do it though. Uh, well, you'd think a scandal like this would be catnip to the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, but while his response has so far been strong, he has somewhat pulled his punches Today, dropping demands for Cummings to go and refusing to coordinate with other opposition parties on a response. Here he is early in the week. And he's just failed that test. He hasn't sacked Dominic Cummings. He hasn't called for an investigation. And he's treating the British public with contempt. Millions of people across the country have made the most agonising choices not to visit relatives, some of whom were ill, dying not to go to funerals. They deserve better answers than they got from the Prime Minister today. The government's argument is that Dominic Cummings was doing what was right for his family, to make sure that his child had appropriate childcare if he fell ill. Is that not a reasonable excuse? Would you do the same? That's not a reasonable interpretation of the rules, and the Prime Minister knows it. And millions of people have not done the same. That's why this is such an important issue. Millions haven't done that, and he has done it. One rule for the Prime Minister's advisers, another rule for everybody else. You've stopped short so far calling for Dominic Cummings to resign or be sacked. Have you changed your mind on that? If I were Prime Minister, I'd have sacked Cummings. And there must now be an investigation into what has happened. But that's what I'd have done. Uh, Salma, what have you made of Starmer's response? What I really think is super interesting about the way the opposition has played it is, first of all, I mean, cliched, everybody said this, it's actually incredible how well um, they have played it thus far. Um, I don't think you would have had this under Jeremy Corbyn, like the operation has completely changed, it's professionalised, it's serious, it's thoughtful. Uh, that is point one. Point two, um, Keir Starmer seems to be recognising his mistakes and rectifying them quickly. So this idea that he was going to try and create this coalition of the willing with all the other opposition MPs, I mean, kind of tactically stupid. You know, if the Tories are divided, let them continue to be divided. There is no point in you trying to intervene in that when it's not about you. You don't have something to answer. Nobody's really pressuring you to, to intervene in this. Um, you know, let, let the Conservatives ride it out in whichever way. But as I say, the thing that I find most interesting about it is that he puts something out, he has time to litmus test it, he corrects as he goes. And I think that's a very interesting way of doing opposition. Matthew, how, how does Starmer convert this into a, a, a kind of long-term weapon that he can use? That, you know, you, you said that there's four years until the next election, but it could do lasting damage. Starmer obviously has to kind of capitalise. How does he do that? Well, I think I think he does it in the way he's doing it now, which is to not assume that he needs to jump all over it in, in the immediate term. This is a an issue that isn't Labour versus the Conservatives. This is the Conservative Prime Minister and his advisor versus ordinary everyday people who are offended by uh, their behaviour. And I think that he has recognised that. I, I do think he needs to move into a a more assertive phase, not necessarily to be to make it more political. And I think that Sam is exactly right that this shouldn't be about opposition parties getting together. But I do think he needs to give voice with some more passion to people's frustrations and what it says about the 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 uh, how out of touch the the prime minister uh, looks. So I, 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 I do think that he needs to move into that phase. But I do think that his his own kind of approach, very slow, very steady. He's building a case 
for himself as a potential prime minister. He's not trying to look like a brilliant leader of the opposition. Labour's had good leaders of the opposition in the past who have never become prime minister. Keir wants to become the prime minister, and so he's attempting to, you know, show people what kind of leader of the country he would be while also holding the government to account. I think that's important, actually, because um, the, the really significant distinction that uh, Starmer has made so far is he's today not saying the prime minister should sack Cummings. He's saying, if I were prime minister, I would have sacked him. I think it's it, you might say it's a it's a fine distinction, but I think it's a really important one because it, it gets across to the public. What would what would Keir Starmer be like in number 10? And that's the only question he wants to keep the public asking. Um, I, I think that. In, in many ways, and we haven't discussed this, I think Boris is actually, Johnson is actually quite lucky that th- the timing of this is actually so early in this parliamentary term. Because politically speaking, we've got a long way to go to 2024. Uh, a lot can happen. There may well be uh, a double-dip recession. Who knows uh, what's going to really cause him damage. It might be the the, the mass unemployment rather than the mass deaths in the long term that actually really do for him if, if, if those are occur in north, northern seats or, or elsewhere. Um, but he's been lucky because it's so early, relatively speaking, for in, in this term. I mean, I remember Bernie Eccleston. Everyone forgets this. The Bernie Eccleston affair under Tony Blair, it was, it was months after a landslide victory, landslide victory. And he was still on the back foot over this million pound donation from a dodgy guy who seemed to want to buy his way in public policy on smoking. Um, and Blair had to reject the donation and say, look, to the people, look, I'm, people think I'm a pretty straight kind of guy. And he got away with it. And he got away with it because he won you know, a massive majority the next general election. It, the reason he got away with it is, as I say, it was quite early in his tenure. Um, and, you know, you could, you could subsume it into other grander narrative. And if Johnson can make, play this down and, and actually still somehow deliver his grand, grander narrative of levelling up, He's still got a chance. And so it's 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 worth not overstating the political damage that could happen. We all know what it could happen, but it's worth thinking about how could he survive this? And that's what they'll be thinking in number 10. Yeah, I think that the thing for, for Keir and, and the way his team are looking at this is that it, it seems from the outside, I don't have any inside information on this, but it seems from the outside like they have decided to deprioritise what is tactically right to win the week in favour of the bigger picture. And, you know, you can you can... You can, I can't remember who said this, but uh, one Tory MP uh, described Ed Miliband as having, uh, often having good weeks, but rarely having good months. And I think that, that Keir is taking that approach as well. The most important thing in, in politics is to try and do the right thing for the country and to show people what you think the right thing is. And the tactics are subservient to all of that. So he's taking a steady approach because I think that's what he wants to show people out in the country that's the kind of person he is rather than getting a scalp and uh winning some headlines and and then in a in a in a while people have forgotten about that and haven't learned anything about him but i think also it's worth mentioning here that although this won't att- attract the attention of the general public starmer has had a very good month when it comes to his internal labor party politics only this week it's been subsumed by everything else but he's got his general secretary in place the person he wanted uh, and that's been a very long involved process a lot of sort of wounded egos on the way um, a lot of backroom dealing and he's done it and he's done it with a very narrow majority and it should not be underestimated how difficult that is to do ed miliband didn't get the general secretary he wanted uh, corbyn at the beginning didn't get his own general secretary Starmer right from the get-go has got a guy who he trusts 
And you can see, again, this week, there have been other people who have been removed from key positions in the London Labour Party. There's this position, there's this move towards changing the whole NEC with new form of elections to embed a kind of moderate majority. Um, again, I think Matthew is absolutely right. In terms of the strategy, you look at whether someone's had a good month and he, boys, he had a good month within the Labour Party. Yeah, interesting. Well, we must move on, though. It's time for the quiz. Yay! Um, Salma's unfortunately had to leave us to attend to more uh, urgent matters. Salma could actually get a draw if we're all terrible. So, you know. Yeah, I might um, uh, WhatsApp her the questions and see Yeah, yeah. (laughs) how she does. I'll post it on Twitter later. Um, Well, this week's quiz is all about special advisors. Ooh. Oh. I'm so enthusiastic. Um, so, question number one: Which uh, Matthew? You probably just want to unmute for this because you're going to be shouting out answers. And stuff. <laughs> I'll be quick on the draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which former Conservative Spad said they voted green in the 2001 general election? Wow, uh, that's said, great trivia. Said it recently or said it at the time? Uh, uh, didn't say it at the time, but also didn't say it recently. Oh, um, use your powers of deduction with this one. My uh, guess is, this is Dominic someone, Cummings. <laughs> this, is, this is someone who's become an MP since. It's got to be uh, no. no MP, MP. Oh, no, no not oh, an MP, right. not an MP, right. not an MP. No, um, Nick Timothy. So, no, I'm totally I flummoxed. Shall I give you a clue? Yeah. Think, think. Who first started kind of greenifying the Tories? David Cameron. No. Yeah, um, well, you can yeah. warm now. Uh, uh, Steve Hilton did. Yes. Ah, of course. Uh, of course. I'll, give you, I'll give you the point. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. And now on Fox <laughs> News. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which former special advisor apparently reportedly called the BBC the bloody Baghdad Broadcasting Corporation? Ooh. Um, did you say Tory special advisor? It can't, it can't no. be Campbell. can't be Campbell, it's, can it? It's Campbell. Yeah. Right, okay. Alistair Campbell. So it's a draw. Uh, Yeah, the FT reported that Tony Blair's former spin doctor burst into an off-the-record interview with the PM in 1997 complaining about the BBC's coverage of (laughs) events in Iraq and called them the bloody Baghdad Broadcasting Corporation. (laughs) Yeah. So that goes back away, a bit away. Um, Final question, a tiebreaker. Um, which former cabinet minister did Dominic Cummings describe as thick as mince and lazy? David Davis. David Davis. Yes, oh, Matthew, you were first off the draw. Yes. You've won the quiz. Get in. Well done. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, Cummings was angry that David Davis's Brexit repeal bill had some provisions in it that would, uh, would he saw allow ministers to cave into EU demands at the last minute. Um, Leave.eu's Andy Wigmore re- replied by describing Dominic Cummings as a super prat. So there Ooh. you go. Yeah, <laughs> good burn. <laughs> Matthew wins. Yeah, Matthew wins. Congratulations. Uh, it was because I wasn't muted. I could be quick on the draw. <laughs> <laughs> right. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to my guests for joining me. And make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so that you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. Uh, and finally, plenty of ministers have been left squirming on the airwaves as they attempted to defend Dominic Cummings this week. 
But I'm declaring this from his old friend Michael Gove as the most egregious excuse of the lot. Would you go on a 60-mile round trip to test your eyesight? Um, uh, I have, on occasions in the past, um, driven with um, uh, my wife in order to make sure that... Uh, uh, that's the right way of putting it. I'm staggered. Uh, I don't know how you're going to get out of this one, but it's going to be fun. No. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, people who know me would know that um, I, I'm not an authority on driving um, and that I'm not the best person in the world to ask detailed questions about driving. No, I merely asked you if you've ever a... been on a 60-mile round trip to test your eyesight, and you said you had. I mean, why not, not go to no. Specsavers? Well, I, I, I've subsequently got it. No, the, 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 the point that I was seeking to make is that uh, uh, I'm not an authority on driving as someone who uh, took seven attempts to pass their driving test. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.